0: All right, if you would, let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, we've been here for a number of weeks now, and we are continuing our series on Isaiah 40, entitled The God of All Comfort. And our subject for today, as we look at Isaiah 40, is found in verse number 9. And we left off with this last week as we finished our Uh, exposition on this text, it's found in verse number nine, the very last phrase, Behold your God. Behold your God. It was this phrase that we concluded last week's message with, and it's this phrase that reminds us of why we can trust everything and every word that God says. The word behold is an interesting word. It's a word that at its simplest definition means to look. It means to set your eyes upon. But it doesn't mean to set your natural eyes upon as much as it means to set your eyes of faith upon. There's a difference in eyes of natural sight and eyes of faith. Uh, Many people don't have to be convinced of something if they can see it with their natural eyes. But what Isaiah is trying to get us to understand is that I'm not asking you to behold your God with natural eyes. I'm asking you and commanding you to look at your God with eyes of faith. You see, it's in the eyes of faith is where we see God. Remember, all of these thoughts are in the context... "...of the sovereign comfort of God, which makes God, and God alone, the God of all comfort." And that's what we've been driving home over these last seven or eight weeks. And yet, the prophet Isaiah is calling Israel to behold, not with natural eyes, but to behold with eyes of faith, your God." You see, when we're told to behold, it's not a singular one-time event. When John the Baptist in the book of John came preaching Jesus, and he used the terminology, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He was not calling mankind to behold Jesus with natural eyes. He was calling them to behold Jesus with eyes of faith. Believe on Him. He is the promised Messiah in which Isaiah spoke of. Remember, Isaiah has been preaching and proclaiming a coming Savior. Yet this is years before John the Baptist would ever come onto the scene. So the prophet's calling them to behold with eyes of faith this divine person which is to come. He is that promised, prophesied of, and even expected God. He is a God who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He is a God who will take on our nature, our sin nature, yet be without sin. He is a Messiah that will come and will be God manifested in the flesh. In other words, if you want to see God, look with eyes of faith to Jesus. This will be your Savior. This will be your God, truly God. A God who is able to save to the uttermost. Remember, the greatest source of comfort is the fact that God can save you to the uttermost. Not that you could just be spared from affliction in this life, but that He can save you to the uttermost. The uttermost depth of your soul. Isaiah is preaching, look to Him with eyes of faith and be saved. Behold, John the Baptist would later say, Behold the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sins of the world. How is He going to do that? He's going to bear your sins on the cross. Behold Him now as your King. Behold Him now as your God. Where is God? God is seated upon a throne. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ today? He is at the right hand of God the Father. Where is the Holy Spirit today? He is dwelling and indwelling every believer. Today we want to look at this text and consider Behold Your God with kind of an extra or a subtitle, The Strong. Behold Your God, The Strong. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to read from... That phrase, behold your God, down through verse number 17. We're not going to cover all these verses today, but this is where we're going over the next few weeks as we consider, behold your God. Notice again at the end of verse 9, behold your God, behold the Lord God will come with strong hand and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold His reward is with Him and His work before Him. He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Now see if these verses sound familiar to the hymn that we opened our service with today. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With him took he counsel, and who instructed him? And taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. You see, what Isaiah does in these verses between the end of verse 9 and verse 17 is he declares By saying, Behold your God. And he gives them really four aspects of this God that we're going to consider over the next few weeks. Today we're going to consider, Behold your God the strong. Next week we're going to consider, Behold your God the shepherd. Then we'll consider, Behold your God the sovereign. And then finally, Behold your God the spirit. Each one of these aspects describes the God in which Isaiah is calling people to look to. You see, we could say something like this, that God is sufficient for some things, but that would be inaccurate. God is all sufficient in all things, for all things, not just some things. The word sufficiency is a word in our vocabulary that sometimes gives us the idea that it's just enough. And sufficient's a good word, but Isaiah uses a word that's even stronger than sufficient. He uses the word strong. Not only does he call him strong, but look at verse number 10. He calls it a strong hand. Now, In your English translation in the King James Version, the word hand is italicized, which means that the King James translators in this particular English version, they added that word hand with the idea of giving a greater understanding of what the intent of the passage was. Now, if you connect that thought with what we read in verse 12, you can see where the connection is. He calls it a strong hand, and then the first question that Isaiah asks in verse 12 is what? Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So the hand gives us an idea that we're talking about a God who has placed the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. It's an amazing thought. The hollow of the hand my hand, in its human form, could barely hold much of anything. But he's measured out the waters in his hand. We see that this strong hand, Isaiah, as we pull these verses apart, notice he says, Behold, your, the Lord God, verse 10, will come with a strong hand. Now, some commentators and some preachers take this to be speaking of the second coming of Christ, which is what you and I are waiting for. But we do know his second coming is certain. We know the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And we know that uh, we don't know the hour, we don't know the date, but we know, in fact, he is coming again. We've been given assurances, we've been given promises in the Word. Prophecy tells us that Jesus Christ's coming, His second coming, will in fact be attended with with power. He will raise the dead, all nations will stand before Him, all nations will bow before Him. He will pronounce proper sentencing upon those. His arm, His hand, will rule in perfect righteousness when He comes again. But the context and what's more acceptable and agreeable to the context is because Isaiah is not looking forward to a second coming. He's looking forward to the first coming. Remember, Jesus Christ had not yet come yet. So I don't think contextually Isaiah would be speaking about the second coming before announcing the first coming. Does that make sense? It should be Jesus Christ coming first. Remember, when we read Scripture, we're looking back on what's already taken place in many, uh, many subjects. So we're going to take the, 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 the contextual position that Isaiah is not speaking about the second coming of Christ. He's speaking about Jesus Christ coming first in the incarnation. God taking on a robe of human flesh without ever ceasing to be God. And we've been learning, of course, that John the Baptist... He's been prophesying about John the Baptist coming, so contextually speaking, it would be accurate to say that he's speaking about Messiah. But we do understand that the message John the Baptist was going to preach and the message that even ministers of the gospel today are preaching is we are preaching that there is this Christ who is coming, this Christ who has come. Now, it's not God the Father who's coming, it's God the Son who'll be coming. When we see the phrase, behold your God, oftentimes we, in our, in our way of reasoning, tend to break things down by saying, when we see the word God in Scripture, it only refers to God the Father. And when we see the word Jesus Christ, it only refers to Jesus Christ. But understand this, Jesus Christ is God. So when I say, behold your God, I'm not just saying, behold God the Father, I'm saying, behold the entirety of the Godhead. Not just God the Father, but God the Son, and also God the Holy Spirit. That's why in these verses, between verse 9 and verse 17, Isaiah is going to deal with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all in the context of Behold Your God. He doesn't leave any out. So we have to understand here that seeing how the gospel is to be preached, and we've learned about why this message was supposed to be proclaimed boldly, without fear. We are to do this, why? Because the Savior is our salvation. Behold, your God is a call of salvation. We learned back in verses 3 through 5, we considered the meaning of those particular words, the voice of Him that crieth in the wilderness. We learned about a highway for our God. We learned a little bit about the glory of God. We learned about all flesh seeing it. And we'll look next week, and he's described in verse 11 as a shepherd. Look what it says. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. One thing I noticed when I was over here a little bit earlier this morning, I noticed the use of the word his in verses 11 and 10. Notice his arm shall rule, his reward. His work, His arm, His bosom. It's about what God does, not about what we do. Many today are preaching a religion about what they do instead of what God does. Man is so enamored with himself that he would rather elevate what he does than what god has done you don't see god calling man to exalt, you don't see god calling man to exalt another man you see god using his men to call people to exalt himself any religion that exalts man and attempts to lower god is nothing more than a cult It's a cult. Because only the true gospel elevates God. Every other religion has some element of it that elevates man. Either in what he does, what he has to do, or sadly, what they believe earns the right to be saved. All of that is cultic. That is not the gospel. So notice that Isaiah is calling Them to behold the strong hand or the strong arm. That tells us something about us. God's hand is strong. Our hand is weak. God's hand is strong. Our hands are weak. Remember Isaiah 53, 6 tells us about what our condition is. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have strayed away from God. There is nothing that in us that made us move ourselves towards God. It was his strong hand that sought us and brought us unto himself, not the other way around. Some, some men preach a gospel that man are chasing down Jesus, and pardon this expression, trying to grab on to the hem of his garment. And that he is dragging them and not real accepting them. No, no man would go chasing after the Lord Jesus Christ. It is He who comes after the sinner. Again, man is enthralled and enamored with himself. And yet it is this very purpose that that's not what the message is. I'm thankful to know this morning that God has not left me to myself to come to Him when I'm ready, because I would have never been ready. I would have never been ready. But yet He came seeking after me. God is the one sending the Deliverer. We're not delivering ourselves. Verse 10 and 11, He is described as He who will deliver, He who will shepherd, He who will lead. When we see the word shepherd, we immediately go to the Lord Jesus and we think about the shepherd and the sheep. We see in this picture this, this perfect combination of compassion, of tenderness, but strength. You know, it's, it, this may be a little bit of a side note. It does not have to be either or. Do you know a strong man can be compassionate? Do you know a strong God who who deserves and demands justice and holiness can still be a compassionate God? You don't have to make God the God of only love or the God of only wrath. A God of wrath and a God of love coexists and a shepherd exists who gently, it says, I'm, I'm getting into next week's message already, who gently... Gently leads his sheep. It's the same God. The same God who leads with a strong hand, who comes with a strong hand, is the same God who will gently lead his sheep. What an amazing blend of combinations. To think about this is that same God, strength and tenderness all at the same time. It's interesting that Jesus Christ himself personified that in his earthly ministry. He would preach to the Pharisees, Woe to you hypocrites, vipers, who hath warned you of the wrath to come, and yet, using the same terminology, all you who are heavy laden, come unto me, and I will in no wise cast out. Amen. The same God. And yet, Isaiah is saying, Behold Him. He's telling us to look. Why? Because man will not naturally look on his own. We often think about something that's strong. And Isaiah here speaks about the strength of the deliverer. His arm shall rule for him. Christ will have the power of himself to do the work that he comes to do. What's the work that he's going to come to do? He's going to come and he's going to completely do the work of salvation himself. In Isaiah sixty-three, there are this entire chapter is related to this, but Isaiah sixty-three, the verse five, the first five verses here, again is a prophetic, um, a prophetic look by Isaiah. Isaiah sixty-three, verse one. It says, Who is this that cometh from Edom, with dyed garments of Basra, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. This is, this is part of that God of, of justice, that God of vengeance. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. It will be Jesus alone who will be sufficient for all these things. And then the first of these, his statements. Back in our text in Isaiah 40. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him. So we need to understand here that it's going to be this strong hand that is going to rule, but it's also his reward is going to be with him. We need to be delivered. There's no question about it. And friends, I'm telling you, Everybody seems to have the answer to what's going on in life right now. And I'm telling you, the only answer that has ever been is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only answer for this sin-sick world. Now, there are things that we ought to say. There are things we ought to stand upon. But I'm telling you, no change, no deliverance takes place without being delivered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot expect a depraved, lost Individual to live godly. You can't expect that. Christians are living like we can't believe what we're seeing. We're seeing the results of depravity. And as bad as it is, we have not yet seen man in his absolute worst. We still haven't seen it, as bad as it is. And folks, there, is, there are some horrible, atrocious, awful things happening. And things that have me concerned from a human perspective. But you still have not even seen the worst that man is capable of doing. You see, when we understand that all men need a deliverer, we needed this deliverance. Why? Because we could not live up to the demands of God's law. Sin, apart from God, has dominion over us. And please, never lose sight that Satan does, in fact, have power in this world. We have seemingly forgotten that there is a satanic force that is at work every single day. Now Satan's not omnipresent, he can't be everywhere equally at the same time, but he does have a legion of his own angels that are carrying out demonic things. But I want you to know he's a defeated foe. The reward that Isaiah is speaking of here, the reward that is with him, Jesus' reward is that... Those he brings with him are those that will believe in him, those that will trust in him, those who will embrace the gospel. No human being who's ever lived has been able to deal with the true results of what sin leaves behind. The wages of sin is death. No man has ever nor will ever be able to deliver themselves from the pangs of death. Why does the resurrection matter so much? Because Jesus Christ was delivered from death. Jesus Christ would come to this earth, would take on that robe of human flesh, He would bring His reward with Him. Notice He says not only is His reward with Him, His work before Him. The work that the Messiah would do would be the work of redemption, the work of salvation. That's what Jesus Christ would come to do. It was given to him. He voluntarily agreed to do it in the covenant for the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ knew that his coming would require his suffering and his death. And he delighted in it. I have yet, I have yet to meet a human being who delights in suffering and delights in death. Now we've had a lot of tough people over the years who said I can take anything you dish out until the point the suffering came and then suddenly they weren't so tough. It's easy to say I'll suffer when the suffering time comes. I'll die for my faith when the time comes. It's a whole lot different when the day actually arrives. Everybody's bold in the church house. Everybody's bold. to Say I can do it. Jesus Christ agreed that I would come, I will suffer in human flesh, and I will die. I will finish the work. He is, in fact, that strong hand. He's a strong hand who is a sufficient ruler. Why can He rule us? He can rule us because He has been given all power over heaven and earth over death, over sin, and over hell. He did what we could not do. The Apostle Paul himself wrote, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. We were so weak, we couldn't keep the very basic, Tenants of the law. Because if you're guilty of breaking one, you're guilty of all. That means all of us were too weak to keep the law, period. But yet, you have a sufficient ruler. Man born in sin could not fulfill that which Jesus Christ would fulfill. And he did it Alone. Luke one fifty one simply says this about Christ, He hath showed strength with His arm. This strong hand, His arm shall rule for Him. His reward is with Him. His work before Him. We see the entirety of the work in which Jesus Christ did as a sufficient ruler. But He's also not only that sufficient and strong ruler, He is a sufficient and strong Savior. When you talk to people who really before their eyes were truly open to their own sin, they describe it as not being able to see what they can see now. What they couldn't see and why I believe this is so important, and I think you cannot be saved until you see it, until you begin to see the actual nature of your own sin. Some people say, I've heard, I've heard sermons all my life. I grew up in the church. I've memorized Bible verses. And yet, I never saw my own sin. I never saw that I, my sin, put Jesus Christ on the cross. My sin, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees. It's easy to look at the cross and say, look what the Sadducees and Pharisees and the Roman government did. No, you did that. I did that. And that requires me actually seeing God with eyes of faith, not with natural eyes. Because with natural eyes, the cross looked like a colossal failure. How can a Messiah die like that, like a common criminal? How can our Messiah, and yet the very nation of Israel that Isaiah is telling them, behold your God, are the primary ones that will reject Messiah when he comes, and yet they were privy to the information before the Gentile ever was. You realize the Jews knew long before any Gentile nation knew that a deliverer was coming. They've known about Jesus longer than anybody else, and yet today, most of them are blinded to the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not until God opens the eyes we can even see. Opening the eyes isn't just so we can now see Jesus. Opening the eyes is so we can see our own sin and our need of repentance. 50 or 60 years ago, repentance started dropping out Of the plan of salvation. Repentance suddenly started disappearing from pulpits. Suddenly it was no longer about repentance it was about admittance. Admit you're this. Me admitting it isn't repentance. If you tell me I'm wearing a gray suit today I can admit my suit is gray. That's not a problem. Repentance is a whole other thing. I see my sin and I'm going to I want to do something about this. I don't just want I just don't want my heaven-bound ticket. You preach a gospel that's just you want to go to heaven and doesn't have anything to do with repentance and has nothing to do with seeing your own sin. You're preaching something false. It's not just about getting out of hell. It's about understanding the reality that in our own sin, Jesus Christ experienced the worst things that any human being could ever endure, and he wasn't guilty of any of it. You were. I was. And yet, Jesus Christ dies alone on a cross and yet the Bible says he was strong enough to endure it all. Psalm 89:19 says God laid help upon one that is mighty. Our help cometh from the Lord. The prophet Isaiah writes of him in, in Isaiah 63 which we read, he writes about Jesus himself saying I have trodden the winepress alone. That's why I had us read that text in Isaiah 63. The Lord Jesus Christ's power would be sufficient and strong enough without the help of any other. Jesus Christ would have all means available to bring his sheep unto himself. Mankind thinks God needs assistance. I grew up being taught in that in many ways. God needs you enlist in God's service. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't serve God, but I'm telling you today, if you're doing anything for the Lord Jesus Christ because you think God needs you, you misunderstand depravity and you misunderstand who you really are. God has never, until you can measure the waters in your hand, there really is absolutely no comparison. Can you you imagine someone actually saying God needs me? Can you imagine pastors standing up in their pulpits today saying, listen, I'm telling you, God can't do this unless He's got me. He doesn't need me. Isaiah's not saying, look look to the great preachers who are going to come. And by the way, we have been blessed over the years with some mighty preachers of God. Some that have greatly influenced me. Some that when I stand behind this pulpit, some of their writings and their books and their sermons... They're a part of me. They're a part of of my entirety. But Isaiah is not saying. One of my favorites is is Charles Spurgeon. He's not saying, Behold, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was used greatly, but he's not saying, Look at Charles Spurgeon. He's saying, Behold your God. Spurgeon was fallible, just like every other preacher who will ever stand up. Whether it's, a, whether it's a preacher, as a pastor in a pulpit, or a missionary on a foreign field, an evangelist, whatever it is, that man is fallible. That means that man's going to say some things that aren't quite right. <laughs> he might actually get the words turned around, That he might actually, once in a while, might actually give the idea that the gospel he's preaching, he might make a mistake in the way he presented it. Why? Because we're fallible creatures. But when Isaiah says, behold, God, he's pointing them to a God who is never wrong, a God who never makes a mistake, a God who doesn't change, a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet, when our Lord comes, they would see it. They would know he has to be the promised Messiah. John the Baptist would point people directly to him, say, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Every Jewish person knew who John the Baptist was talking about. Because they knew the Old Testament Scripture. They knew what Isaiah 40 said. They knew Isaiah 9. They knew about Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, they would not receive him. Remember when we were going through John chapter 17 and our Lord's great high priestly prayer, He said this to the Father, I have glorified Thee on the earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. In this verse number 10 of Isaiah 40, Isaiah prophesies that the Savior will have a great reward for all that He does and all that's going to happen. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him he proved exactly to be what Isaiah said he would be. And I love what Paul wrote in Philippians 2.9 regarding the Lord. He said, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And we know just before the Lord ascended after his resurrection... He told his disciples in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, this is one of the great mysteries of God, but there are people that say right now in our society that God is not in control. He has never ceased being in control. If you preach a God that is not in control right now, I don't want your God. I don't want anything to do with him. If you're telling me that you have a God who is for the time being just removed his hand and said, I'm just going to let society burn itself up. I don't want your God. We're not dealing with a God that Isaiah said when this God comes, He'll be a God that when times get really rough, He'll kind of remove Himself from society and He'll let you burn it down. No, this God is the God I want you to look to no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening, because this God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isaiah was pointing to the time when Jesus Christ was going to come. We now look back. Where's our hope? Our hope is in the same Jesus that Isaiah was saying he's coming for the first time. We look now not as a God who has removed himself from society. We look at this God who is fully in control and guess what? We have this extra comfort, comfort coming. Jesus Christ is coming, is coming that second time. Mm-hmm. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now some of us, more than others, want to hasten him a little bit quicker. We want to tell him, "Hey, all right, now you come now." No, he'll come when it's appointed by the Father. You can beg him, even so come, but he's not going to come out of his purpose and his plan. You say, "How in the world can what we've seen in this year alone how could this be part of the purpose and plan of God?" Every bit of it is. You say, "Some of this is really bad." It is. But do you know that this is not the first time in history things have been really, really bad? Why is it so bad? Because you and I are living it. <laughs> history has a way of being forgotten. Perspective has a way of only affecting us if it affects us. We, we, we are so prideful. We even do this. We look at our, and we say, look, nobody has ever gone through what we're going through. people have gone through worse. There are people who are going through worse things right now than what we're even going through. Now, that doesn't mean that this isn't hard. And that doesn't mean that this isn't challenging. And and this doesn't mean that these things are not heartbreaking. But I would simply tell you the same thing that Isaiah would have told everyone who would listen. Behold your God. When you see When you see the things that are going on in our world, behold your God. Not behold some God. It's amazing how much false religion is coming out of the woodwork right now and giving people no hope at all. None. I hear what their leaders say and I said, that's not hope, that's not comfort. And we have a few more here today than we had last week, but I made this statement last week. It's an amazing thing. God did not just bring us to Isaiah 40 just randomly. We were, this was, we were going here before any of this ever happened. Because He knew God's people need to be reminded of the comfort that's found in Him, even in the midst of things that are troubling. Behold your God. Remember what Isaiah even would say later in Isaiah 53 about the Lord. He said, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I stand before you today justified, not because of my own goodness. I stand here justified because of Christ's goodness. And Isaiah, although he's preaching before Jesus had actually come, he was pointing them to that deliverer, that strong hand, that strong arm, that shepherd. You today may be sitting here and you might say, I don't see what the need is. But I would tell you this this morning, if you realize your condition and you realize the position that you're in right now, you realize that I am hopelessly separated from God right now. I'm hopelessly separated from him. I am not in Christ today. Then I would command you today by the authority of Scripture, not on my commandment, but on the commandment of Scripture, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not with eyes of natural eyes, but with eyes of faith. Faith that says, I realize what Jesus Christ has done for me. People ask me today now, what is your testimony of salvation? It's very simply, Christ died for me. You know what it used to be? I prayed this, this, and this. If you know that Christ died for you, repent of your sins. Trust in Christ alone. Believe the gospel, not with human eyes, but by beholding your God with eyes of faith. If you realize that Jesus Christ, He who knew no sin, became sin for you, realize your greatest enemy, your greatest danger has been conquered the wages of sin. What we see going on in our world today and every other year, every past century, everything going forward. When we see man acting the way they act, we're acting in accordance to our nature. What we are. Depravity. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. By his strong arm, not by our strength. Not by our sufficiency. Christ is our sufficient ruler because he is our sufficient Savior. Today's that day I plead with you. Come to Christ. Don't walk to him. Run to him. Don't think about it. Don't consider it. Run to Christ. And if you run to him, you're going to find out he's already been seeking you. He's right there. It's an amazing truth. Next week, we'll deal with this phrase again, behold your God, but we'll deal even more more in in depth about him being our shepherd. I want to conclude our study hour this morning with a reading from our confession. We've been reading out of chapter three and we're at paragraph seven. So this is the last paragraph of the chapter of God's decree. And so we'll read this together, then we'll pray. I'll make just a couple of announcements before we're dismissed. So paragraph seven, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God. And of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. All right, so just a